Good morning again. Thank you, Joe, <clears throat> and our worship team. Uh, we'll be this, uh, considering this morning Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17, which we've read already. So if you're not there already, take your Bibles and turn uh, there with me again. And really, we're going to look at sort of the second part of verse 14. This is part two of a two-part sermon, because there's just too much in here to unpack last week uh, without staying a long, long time. And so uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 12, uh, 14, second part of 14, uh, to verse 17. And so I want, to, I want to read that, just that bit again, just to have it fresh in our minds. He says, the Bible says, Strive for peace with everyone, to that holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And now that, I want you to mark that in your mind. I want you to memorize that. Maybe not now, but this week. Because it's such a crucial, impactful verse. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That should sober us. That should stop us in our tracks. I continue reading. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we need more than anything this morning to hear from you, to hear from your word. Lord, we don't need a clever speaker or a comedian or a philosopher. Lord, we need your word. We need sound doctrine, which is found in your word, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to bind it to our hearts and to change us and transform us, as Paul put it, one level of glory to another. And so, Lord, as I pray so often, yet I pray again, yet this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So, God, work in us and do in us now what you alone can do, transforming us to live lives full of salt and full of light for your glory. And, God, if there be those, even one here today who does not know you, Lord, I pray that this word would take root in their heart, that you would grant them repentance of their sins and faith in Jesus Christ. You would make their stubborn hearts willing to believe the truth of the gospel. They'd come to know you and live their lives every single moment to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in advance. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. If my dad, my father, were to walk through those doors, Charlie Robinson, if he walked through those doors, well, if he walked through those doors, I would pass out because he's been in heaven 30 years. So, but let's just sit that, for, sit that for aside for a second. But if he walked through those doors and sat down up here, you would all say, without having met him previously, that's Pastor Jeff's dad. You'd say that because we look really just alike. I am Charlie Robinson 2.0. When I go home, they remind me of this. Everyone I meet says, so, oh boy, I know, I know you. I haven't seen you in a long time, but man, you're Jeff Robinson. You're Charlie's boy. I'm always going to be Charlie's boy, and I like that. He's about 5'7", or was about 5'7", about 180 pounds, something like that. Let's not quibble over the weight, okay? So don't, don't let your mind go somewhere else. Let's focus here. And so I have his smile, just like him. I have his laugh. He liked to laugh, and you know I do too. I have his straight kind of early graying hair but not so as you can tell built like him I've got a skin tone and I have his bow legs my dad and I always said if we didn't have bow legs we'd be like six two 
So in heaven, I'm counting on the Lord to fix that, if that is a part of my fallenness, though I don't know. But you would know that's my father because we look just alike. As Christians, we should resemble our father. We should have the family resemblance. We should look like him, just like I do my dad. Now, not all of you look like your dad. I get it. I'm just talking about my experience here. But we should look like our Father. And what is it that most, most um, clearly defines the essence of God the Father? Well, I agree, I agree with the late R.C. Sproul. He said it's holiness. That God is most fundamentally holy. He is, he is like us or made in his image, yet, and yet he's entirely unlike us. We share some of his attributes, but many of his attributes we do not share. And, but he's called us, and this text calls us to be holy. In fact, in, in 1 Peter 1.16, he says, Be ye holy as I am holy. And so the essence of God is his moral perfections, his holiness, his otherness. He is not like this world, the world he made. He's not, we don't believe in pantheism or panentheism. He's not part of the world he's made. He's not, uh, he, he made the world. The, the creator and creature are very distinct. The creator and the creation are distinct, but he is holy. And he's calling us here this morning to be holy. And in this very sobering verse 14, second part of verse 14, he says, pursue peace. We looked at what that means last week, and then we started to sort of scratch the surface, and we're just going to scratch the surface again, by the way. And he says, pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. In fact, if I could summarize, I, I talked about, I, I read our our mission statement, or quote our mission statement earlier, really our mission is this. It's for you, by God's grace, through His Spirit, by His Word, to be made holy. To be made like Jesus. That's what we're here for. That's why we worship God. It's, it's to, be, to have that fatherly image, to look like Him. So that people say, that brother or sister is a Christian. They're a follower of Christ. Why? Because they have the family resemblance. They're holy. And I don't mean super pious, self-righteous. That's not what I mean. Like the Pharisees were snooty and looking down our nose or weird, you know. There are a lot of weird Christians out there. That's not what I mean at all. But we're like him in our love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things are taking root. They're growing in us. That's really why we're here. To be saved and to be sanctified. That's the, the theological term we use for it. And this is a call, remember our context as we've walked through Hebrews all these months, it's a, a call to perseverance. Because what you need today is what I need today, and that is perseverance. You are saved, most of you are probably in Christ, you're saved, I know all your hearts perfectly, but I know most of you. And so your need, your most fundamental need is perseverance. And a major part of that perseverance is holiness, is your sanctification. You're being, which Paul says in Thessalonians, your first Thessalonians, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, right? That's his will. And another word for that is holiness. And he says, pursue holiness. And here's the sobering part. Without which no one will see God. No holiness, no heaven. And we talked last week why that does not mean works righteousness. We're a people of the, of the five solas of the Reformation, right? We cherish those doctrines. By grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, that's salvation, right? If you want to, you missed it last week, go back and, and listen to the, uh, the audio. We unpack that. So pursue holiness, 
And here he's speaking of not the, not the holiness, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us at salvation and just, we're justified by faith. He's speaking here of living humble, godly, servant-hearted lives. That's what he means by holiness. And that's what we're after here. Humble, servant-hearted, godly lives that look like Jesus that say, yeah, there's the family resemblance. Holiness is spoken of in Scripture in two senses. That second one, that's what we're after. Remember J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite writers from the, the 19th century, defined holiness this way, and I love this. I don't just, I'm not trying to be overly academic or anything here, but I can't say it better than he can. He says, holiness is the habit of being one mind with God. One mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture, which is why we need his word every day. It is the habit of agreeing with God's judgment, hating what God hates, loving what God loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of His Word, by truth. That's the first part of our mission statement, right? Truth, life, mission. Truth. Everything built upon the foundation of truth. He who most entirely agrees with God, Ryle says, he is the most holy man. My friend Richard Phillips said, Christians are the most good to the world when we are the least like the world. You get that? We are the most good to the world in the church when we are the least like the world. Boy, the evangelical church, we need to hear that, don't we? Because we're so tempted by the, the siren song of the world. It says, come. We do music better. We do, we, we, we do, we do uh, lifestyles better. And we have to close our ears to the siren song of the world because we're the most good to that world. We can be the most assistance, the most help to the fallen world when we're the least like the world. J.C. Ryle, you know, one of my favorite books called Holiness. He said, here are 12 marks, and we're going to unpack these. I'm just going to go through these, and then we're going to move on. But 12 marks of a holy man or a holy woman. They will do this, he said, and I've revised these a little because he tends to speak in Elizabethan English, and we don't exactly talk that way today, not here anyway, uh, although that's beautiful language, and I commend it to you. He says this, number one. He says, a holy man or holy woman, speaking of both, of course, seeks to be of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in Scripture. What is, what is Romans 12? Knowing the will of God will be transformed by the renewing of our what? Our minds. Is Christianity just merely a leap of faith in the dark? As some culture despisers contend that Christianity is typified by, is defined by, we're just, oh, just taking a leap in the dark. Is it what John Mellencamp says, the blind faith of Jesus? Whatever that means, I have no idea what that means, and he doesn't either, I don't think. Blind faith of Jesus? Sounds good in a song, but yeah. No, that's not what we're asking for here, Right? We want the mind of Christ, the mind that we find in Scripture. We, we become like Him, knowing His will through the Bible. And we're being transformed. We're not pressed into the world's mold. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And worship is part of that, isn't it? Preaching, teaching, reading, meditating, memorizing the Scripture. That's how we're transformed. I don't know of another way to do it. Those are God's, what we call the ordinary means of grace. God does extraordinary work through His ordinary means. That's why we need to be here, right? That's why we need to be in church. That's so why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together because it's a means of grace to us. And when we're gone from it, we're going we're gonna to feel it. I hope you feel it. I, I know I do. I can be out one Sunday if I'm traveling or something, and, man, I just, it just didn't, I'm just all out of sorts. 
So we seek to be of one mind of God. Secondly, a godly man will shun every known sin and keep every commandment. He'll have a greater fear of displeasing God than displeasing man. He'll seek to please God and not man. And yet we have trouble with that, don't we? Why? Because we love to please people. I'm a pastor. And my temptation would be to please you. I'm tempted to do it just to make you happy, make you laugh, to make you happy. And that's it. I, I want to do that. But if that means compromising the truth, I'd better not do that. But I'm still tempted to do that. And that's why I need your prayers, right? That's why Doug and Clay, we all need your prayers because we, we all love to be liked. And sometimes proclaiming the truth, a lot of times it means you're not going to be liked. To be a Christian in this world, you're not going to be, especially this culture now, to take a stand for Christ and areas like sexuality and gender and all this stuff. I mean, you're, you are not. And race and all the rest, you're not going to be liked. You're going to be canceled. Canceled, probably. Canceled away. Been trying to cancel Jesus for how long now? 2,000 years. They've not successfully canceled him. <laughs> You'll have the final word. So we shun every known sin. We keep every commandment. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Come on, tell me what? Keep my commandments. A Christian life is not hard, is it? It's keeping his commandments. But it's impossible to keep the commandments without God's grace, isn't it? It's not hard to understand, but it's hard to execute. That's why we need God's grace every moment. Thirdly, he pursues gentleness, patience, kindness, and government of his tongue. Some guy I know wrote a book about the tongue here recently. And he talked a lot about that stuff. So get it, read it, live it, you know. <laughs> Insofar as it squares the scripture. Gentleness, patience, kindness. It's hard, isn't it? You need God's grace. We need the gospel, right? I'm not, I'm not here to tell you just you need to try hard in this church and it'll be better. The harder you try, the more frustrated you're going to become. But you couple, you couple that, this teaching with God's grace. It, it, God's grace enables us to do it. God's grace saves us, but also sanctifies us, right? Fourth, pursues this, a godly man pursues self-control and self-denial. He'll seek to put sin to death in his life and the passions of the body and the mind. Put to death the old man, breathe the life of the new man. A big part of that is being willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus every single day, every day. Not just on Sunday. Every day. I mean, who are you on Wednesday? Are you the person you are on Sunday? Who are you on Thursday or Friday? That's who you are. You realize that. Whoever you are when nobody's looking, that's who you are. I'm going to be a good boy here, right? I'm up here preaching. Of course, I'm going to be a good boy, right? And you're going to be good too. But who you are on Thursday, Friday, Saturday when nobody's looking, that's who you are. Are you pursuing self-control and self-denial? Are you praying for those things? Don't just say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and do it. You can't. You'll fail. I tried it for years because of some really bad theology I was taught. For years and years, I rededicated my life. I've told you like 147 times. I don't think I really ever rededicated my life, <laughs> really and truly, you know, just trying to get a Band-Aid for my, my spiritual cancer. Fifthly, he's full of brotherly love. Love fellow believers. We'll despise lying and slandering and backbiting and dishonesty and cheating and unfair dealing, Ryle says. And that's right, with the, in the body of Christ. Sixthly, is committed to serving others. We'll not be content with merely doing the other person no harm. We'll try to do them good. I mean, the, the law of God says, don't, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But it also does what? It, it, it um, uh, also commands the, its opposite. It demands that we don't do this, but it also demands that we do something. Remember our series on the Ten Commandments we talked about. There's a positive and a negative side of every commandment. You don't do this, but that means you do this. You don't steal, but you know you, 
you, you pay your taxes or you, you own private property, but you're, you know, you're, you're generous with it and things like that. You don't talk back to your parents, but you, and you love your parents and say really nice things to your parents, right? <laughs> Seventh, he pursues purity of heart. Seek to avoid all filthiness and avoid all things that might draw you into it. We've got to be like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Remember that story and the story of Joseph in late chapters of Genesis, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, especially about the sovereignty of God. In this case, Potiphar's wife, one of, one of Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's generals, five-star generals, he goes to work in their house, and she comes on to him. She tries to get him to, to do things that they shouldn't do, and he does what? He runs. Winds up in jail anyway because she black she basically blackmails him or has him lies about him as arrested but he runs and that's how we do we got to run from every known sin don't we I mean sin is much you're much weaker than you think you are you're much less holy than you think you are and sin is much stronger than you think it is the pull the siren song to go back to my earlier analogy the siren song of sin it'll as I've said many times it will take you further than you want to go keep you along with the stake cost you more than you ever thought you would have to pay if you play games with it you must be putting it to death killing it and pursuing purity of our eighth we fear God we fear God more than man ninth pursue humility Isaiah 66 2 this is the one God says to whom I will look you say the guy with all the theology degrees by his name that's the guy with whom I will look the guy with the blog that everybody reads or the books that everybody reads that's the one to whom I will look the one who goes to Christ Fellowship Church every Sunday, never misses, never late, that's one to whom I will look. That's not what he says at all, is it? He says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Pray that for yourself every day. I pray that every day. And boy, I, I, even though I pray it every day, I feel like I'm just <laughs> not very far down the road on humility and contrition over sin in my own heart and the sins of others and, and I'm not very I don't tremble like I should at God's word sometimes I just you know we, we, we're so familiar with it there's a what Michael Horton calls a greasy familiarity with the things of God and we touch them so much and we complain them we just we, we forget to take them seriously they're true and they're true for us and we judged by these things so we must pursue humility because we're not God and it, the situation is far more serious than we tend to think. Tenth, we pursue faithfulness, and he pursues faithfulness in all duties and relations in life. Be faithful in your marriage, your friendships, faithful to God. Pray for faithfulness, the fruit of faithfulness. Faithful as a deacon, as an elder, as a, a Sunday school teacher, as a, a wife, a husband, father, son, daughter. What are all your faithful in your work? Pray for faithfulness. Pray that you'll honor God in those things, all those things. Eleven, he pursues spiritual mindedness. He'll do everything he can to set his affections on things above and will hold things on earth very loosely in our hands. We can't live like this life is all there is. I hope you realize that. But sometimes I think we tend to live as if the gospel is not true, that maybe our phone is ultimate. Oh, we've been able to design this. I mean, look how powerful man is. And God can just flip this away like a pesky fly. Say, <laughs> who do you think gave you the ability to design that? And by the way... <laughs> We must pursue spiritual mindedness, not earthly mindedness. We should aim to live with our treasure in heaven, to lay up treasure in heaven, not here. And finally, we strive to be like Jesus. That's the, that's the bottom line. I'm a bottom line person. You know that. 
Be like Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're here on Sunday. So we'll be made more like Jesus. And that's what we should be pursuing every day of the week. Be like Jesus. Be conformed to his image because we're fallen, but God is taking us back to the way we were. And it'll never happen in this life. That, that's reserved for the next life, and we'll be glorified in the next life, right? But we're pursuing it, a mad, all-out pursuit. Are you pursuing those things? I think Ryle has a good sermon. That's why I share those with you, because that's what it means to pursue holiness, I think. But, of course, there's danger on every side, isn't there? We live in a fallen world. There's that unholy trinity that is at war with us every second of our lives, the world and the flesh and the devil, Three enemy. We're, we're always fighting battle on three fronts, three theaters of war. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And they all want to draw you away from God, right? Satan wants to have you. And when he's done with you, he'll turn you over to yourself and your, your own worst enemy. You've met the enemy, and he is you. It is us. And then the world. The world which says LGBTQ is just a wonderful thing. It's, it's being open, and it's being honest. It's being, you know, it's being loving. That's the, the God I serve and love. He, he's open to everything. You know, someone told one of the Puritans, I think it was John Owen, said, boy, you're, you know, you're, you're, you, serve a ve- you, you teach a very exacting Bible. And he says, I serve a very exacting God. Very specific. So, no, that's not been left open to us, is it? Gender and sexuality and race, all these discussions we're having in the culture, it's not been left up to us. Just like worship and we come together. That's not been left up. We don't just say, what are we going to do? We don't, Joe and I and our elders don't gather every Sunday and say, what are we going to do next week? We're going to have a light show? We're going to have, like, you know, songs from the 80s next week. We're going to give away a Harley Davidson. What are we going to do? We've got to do something to outdo this week, right? That's done. You know that's done, right? You're going to think it's done. I've seen it. Done. <laughs> we don't do that. God's given us what we're to do, and we're busy about that. If we occupy ourselves with that, we've got plenty to do on Sunday mornings. So there's dangers facing us, and four dangers here that face Christians in pursuit of holiness and heaven, I would argue, is these four things. The first one's this. This is in verse 15. He says, don't fall short of the grace of God. And I think he was speaking of apostasy. But, and, and we see that in our day. We, it's become very fashionable to deconvert and to go on Twitter or Facebook and deconvert, right? We saw this in, in John Piper's son. He deconverted, then he reconverted, then he deconverted. And he's got like 900,000 followers in his deconversion. And you see, it's very sad to read those, those comments. Saying, oh, I get it. I grew up in that. It's very narrow. It is. They're right. They're right. But they don't get it. See to it that no one fall, fails to obtain the grace of God. God forbid you sit in here every week under the word of God and fail to obtain the grace of God. That would be a tragedy. That would be a tragedy. God forbid my children sit in my house 18 years, 19, 20, whatever they're going to be, and fail to obtain the grace of God. What a tragedy that would be. And the writer's been warning against apostasy, apostasy throughout the book of Hebrews chapter 2. He warned believers, remember, of drifting away in that kind of a, like a boat, just unmoored from, from anything that would tie it down. It's a drifting away. Chapter 3, he warned of sin's deceitfulness, which hardens the heart, which leads to people falling away from the living God, the only God, the only place where salvation is found. And then chapter 6 is the most probably memorable warning, the most famous warning, as does verse 10, chapter 10, which we'll see in, in a couple of weeks. In other words, we must run the race all the way to the end. 
This reminds us that the Bible teaches the best news that all true Christians are secure in God's saving work, are kept by God's powers. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 puts it, God is sovereign in salvation. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He will keep you saved. He will keep you if you're his elect. But there's also a race to be run. God's meticulous, absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility are like J.I. Packer says, twin tracks that run, uh, twin railroad tracks that run from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And indeed, you see it here. And this is why the warnings, I think, are for us as believers. And, and, and for those who seem to be believers, there's debate about that. I, I, think, it's, I think it's both. I used to, Tom Schreiner was my pastor, so I'm going to take both, right? <laughs> we must not drift away. We must cling to Christ. Verse 15 gives the antidote for this first danger, namely the pastoral care of Christians for each other, for the one another lifestyle, which we, you know, we, uh, we emphasize that in our small groups. And I think the phrase, see to it, that little phrase, he says, see to it. See to yourself and see to others. I hear about ministry going on in the body. I've been hearing about that during COVID, and I love it. That's the way it's supposed to be. You, shouldn't have, you don't come to me as the lead pastor or to one of the elders and say, okay, now we've got, we have their imprimatur on it. They've signed off on it, so it's officially ministry. No. No, 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 no. It's ministry to one another so that we don't drift away, so that we don't fall away, so that we don't fail to obtain the grace of God. You see, you see someone struggling, you don't come and get me. No, you pick them up. You care for them. You love them. We'll get involved if we need to, but it's better when the body's ministering to the body. That's what we're here for, to train you up so that you do minister. And that happens here, and I love it when I hear about it. It happens a lot, and I'm grateful for that. We see that in this body. You love each other. I'm, I'm thankful for that. That's why we need to be here and be with each other, right? Well, it was so hard when for those few weeks COVID shut things down. Man, that was hard, wasn't it? We were able to be together. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So see to it. We're to be actively Aware of the danger of falling away, especially when we're facing trials and we're travelers together, engaged in a, a dangerous journey. We need each other. I mean, sanctification is a community project, and it won't happen apart from it. That's how God has designed it. And so we're to check up on each other within the body, make sure everyone's coming along. They're, we're seeking out those who seem to be struggling, who are, have turned back. Maybe they're going the wrong way. Remember we talked about running the wrong way last week? They're running the wrong way. We go after them. We had a church discipline case a couple years ago. It turned out incredibly well. God was merciful. Why? Because Mainly because some of you and us, we went after the struggler. And the struggler was redeemed. And it, we, we celebrated, didn't we? And it didn't always turn out that way, but it does. And that's why the church discipline is so vitally important. Rightly understood and rightly done for the redemption of the body. We, we love each other. And we go after each other. I mean, separation from the church inevitably means separation from God. As members of the body of Christ, we must do everything within our power to prevent our, our members from drifting away from God and His Word. This is a solemn responsibility for us to watch, have watchfulness to our own hearts, but other hearts as well. I hope you, I hope you see that. Promote peace and holiness and further the cause of unity and harmony in the church. Peter said, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's it. It's very simple. But we've not always done that. There's a market-driven approach to the church, and it fills buildings. And I've told you, I think we could fill a building. Now, we don't have a martyr complex here at CFBC. Like, we're the only ones with the truth. The proof of that is we're small. Well, we don't want to be small, necessarily. We want who God brings here, right? But we don't take any pride in that, for sure. We're pride in the fact that we're large. I mean, that has nothing to do with it. I hope you know that. 
But a market-driven approach to the church is not only unbiblical, but dangerous to the individual believer or family because it allows them to leave the church on a whimsy, right? They just leave. And we've had people leave on a whimsy. You know that. Every church has them. That's just universally true, and we will in the future. I hope it's none of you, but they just say, well, you know, we're going to go over here. It's a smorgasbord. They've got a big, bigger youth group and bigger things and more, you know, they've got more, uh, more show, you know, they've got a lot more of this or that, and so we go there. Market-driven approach to church, we just sort of take a little of this. They preach well, but they don't have a good youth group, or, you know, they don't have a good youth group. They have a good youth group. The preaching's not okay. We can put up with that. I hear this. I've counseled people this, to this very thing who's leaving our church saying, well, you know, you don't have this. I just always say, we got the Bible, and that's got to be enough. It's not for you. This probably isn't the place for you. And if we have 10,000 members, I hope that's still going to be the case. I mean, God used John MacArthur to build a massive church out west by just preaching the Bible. So he came to Southern a few years ago, and someone asked him, how did, how did the church grow? What's the secret? And he opened the Bible and read it and shut it, and then just let it sit there. He didn't say anything else. And we go, oh, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. But we don't want to be shoppers, do we? We want to be shoppers. I mean, a church should be, be like a family, a, a, new, a new ethnicity. Where things like race and social class, they don't matter. I don't like it that we have the white church, the black church, the Hispanic church. I mean, of course, there are language barriers sometimes. I get that. But, I mean, we talk a lot about that. Now we're, we're more divided than ever, right? And we're told we don't understand each other and we just, we're being driven apart by forces outside of us. Those, those, those enemies I talked about, they're driving us apart from each other. The church should never be together for that in the first place. We're not together for homeschool. We homeschool, my family does, but we're not together for that. That's not foundation on which to build the church. We, we advocate that and we support that and we support private Christian schools and public schools to think through these issues carefully together. That, right? we're, not, we're not together for those exter- external things because that's not going to last. We're together for the gospel. We're built on that. That's the foundation. Again, we, we advocate some of these things and we promote them. We're thankful for them, but no, we're together for the gospel. And we'll help each other make these decisions about some more, more tertiary matters, more practical matters, right? We'll, we'll be careful, but we're gonna, that's not what we're here for. But a market-driven church, they say, we're here for this or this or this or this. Mm-mm. And that's build a church that's full of unbelievers because it panders to the flesh, your taste, your personal taste. And so you build a personal, ter- personal taste. When people don't have that taste anymore, you're not hip anymore, they'll move on. Because our society fosters, I think, a dangerous individualism. And this trait, unfortunately, has so taken hold of the church. I know as a Southern Baptist, it's taken hold of our denomination, hasn't it? And it, it manifests itself in many ways. I mean, it, Scripture teaches that church members need spiritual care and oversight. I mean, the pastors are overseers and shepherds of God's flock, but the members are called to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. You're called to be that, to care for each other. As a body, not as individuals. Yes, we care individually, maybe we're a body and we, we're a team. We're a family. You have a dysfunctional family? Well, join the club. <laughs> there are only dysfunctional families. But this is the family of God with a perfect father and a perfect son who died in our place to bring us into the so we might be adopted into the family. Sanctification is a community project. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And this morning, beloved, I appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. There are people out there I would have staked my life on. They would run the race all the way to the end who have now apostatized and hate the faith they once proclaimed. 
don't take this for granted. So I'll never do that. No, you've got you to walk with a man. You've got to stay close to Jesus. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Paul said, you're severed from Christ. You would have been justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. That's what he's talking about in Galatians 5.4. Second danger. So the first, the first danger is apostasy. And that happens when you drift away from the church or when we don't care for each other. When your life, Christian life, becomes superficial, it doesn't have any impact on your everyday life. That's what happens. You, you tend to think, this is enough. I'm trying to do this on my own effort. I've got no effort to give to this, and so I'm done with it. Second danger here. Verse 15, second part of verse 15, 15b. Make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and defiles those around you. Bitterness. Bitterness. I see all kinds of bitterness in the church. I have down through the years. Excuse me, I'm... Struggling with my voice this morning. I think this is an allusion to Deuteronomy 29, 18. Because a bitter person in the body of Christ does not just defile themselves, only themselves, they defile others as well in their bitterness. I mean, the author of Hebrews, I think more or less here is quoting the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 29, 18, where Moses told the Israelites, Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of the nations. Make sure that there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. It could be that apostasy produces apostasy. Again, you see Abraham Piper's, his... Feed. Look at look on there in all the comments, and they thank him for setting them free, and giving them permission to lay aside their Christian faith. It's so sad; it breaks my heart. The roots of think about growing a garden. Many of you, I grew up with a garden, grew up on a farm with crops, and so this this. I get this. I mean, the roots of many weeds spread up rapidly. So you don't just cut the tops of the weeds. We pull them out with the roots, right? You take a hoe in your garden and you cut them out. Because those roots, will, they'll take over the plants. They'll suck the life out of the, the energy, the, the, the nutrients in the soil, and the water, the moisture that your corn or tomatoes or, or squash needs to grow. It'll suck, the weeds will suck it out. And see, that's what a bitter person does in the body of Christ. They just suck all the life out of the church. They come to you and say, you know what? I don't like Pastor Jeff, and here's why. Or Pastor Jeff, he's a terrible leader, and here's why. Or Pastor Doug. Boy, you know what I think about him? Or Susie over here, you know what's true? You know? Boy, I don't like her at all. Bitterness. And it sucks the life. sucks the life out of the body. Because that spreads, doesn't it? It spreads like, like a disease. This person causes trouble among God's people. They disturb the peace, bitter words, bitter attitudes. It deprives believers of holiness. It defiles many. Defiles many. It's been jokingly said that Southern Baptists, we multiply by dividing. And that's true, but it's sad. But it's because of this. And we're on the verge of doing it again, aren't we? I mean, denominationally. There's some important matters out there. We make no mistake, there's some important things. But it's going to defile many. The splits defile many. Church splits are never pretty, are they? I've been through <laughs> two or three of those in my life. Been at Southern Baptist all my life. It's never pretty. And there mu there's much collateral damage. It defiles many. I think the word here gives a sense of something staining or a painting over, like a color, like painting over, you know. One of my 
One of my friends said he once got in trouble for painting over a mural in a church because people didn't like that. A good friend. <laughs> That's what this is. You're painting over. You're staining. You're staining the body. We've got to avoid such bitterness. It will defile you. So to, Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. I think we've done this, by and large, through decisionism in the last hundred years in the SBC. You just come forward, shake the preacher's hand, and you're in. And nail down your stake, and you'll never be out. And that teaching has done more harm than perhaps anything in church history. I was victimized by that myself. Many years ago, I thought I was just fine, and I don't know that I was fine. And many of you have a very similar testimony. And it, what that does it's put, is fill our church roles, our membership roles, with unbelievers. And if you don't believe that, go to a church with lots of people like this and preach the word and they will rise up against you because they hate the word. The word resonates with God's people. It does not resonate with unbelievers. And where they hate the word, there you have an unbeliever. They hate the word of God. But I've been a member of this church 57 years, they'll tell you. And I don't like this. And I don't like you. And I mean, I've been told this to my face. And anyone's been in ministry Doug and I have told, swap war stories. Been a pastor for a long time, and yeah, it happens. Bitterness. Because we've let, this is why we have a robust membership on the front end, right? Because, because we want to, as sure as humanly possible, make sure we're dealing with believers here. I mean, they grumble, they complain about everything, they don't serve, they slander, they gossip about the other members and the elders, maybe even teach false doctrine, bring in false doctrine, undermine the sound doctrine, this being taught and believed and confessed by the church. They may come in with worldly attitudes or loaded down with sins. They have no intention of repenting. They trouble the church. And their bitterness spreads like roots from poison ivy and it infects the body. And eventually will tear the body asunder if it's not dealt with by leadership and by individuals. That's the second danger. Third danger. Verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He said, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. See to it. Sexual immorality has ruined more churches, brought down more Christians and more pastors than anything I'm aware of. Especially with the porn culture that we live in today. It's just easy. You've got phones here with you. You've got a machine to look to just, to just continuously engage that. And it will kill you, it will rot your soul. But So never, never in the history of the church have we faced sexual immorality on the level we do today, I'm convinced. Mainly because of the internet and because of the lack of accountability. The vile life he describes here. See, see to it, no one is sexually immoral, unholy. It's a profane attitude about life and about sensuality, sexuality, it's earthbound, it pursues carnal cravings of all sorts, sexual and otherwise, because that leads, there's a downgrade, right, it's never enough, it's like alcohol, you just got more and more and more, and you fall further and further and drift further and further from God until you are gone. I have a friend, you've heard this story, I mean, if he started with pornography, married, today he thinks he's a woman, he's not a woman thinks he is. He's had surgery. He's still a man. It started out, and I guarantee you he never said on the first day, you know, I'm going to join, someday I'm going to become an active LGBT kid. It's going to be great. I'm going to start here, and I'm going to wind up over here. Never, never, never. It never starts there, but it starts here. 
guard ourselves against sexual immorality. Think about just just think about this. Pornography. 10 to 14 billion dollar industry and I hate to even validate it by using that term. 10 to 14 billion dollars sold annually. Sex trafficking growing in evil in this country, but we're barely talking about it. We don't talk about it in the church. We're just I think we're kind of embarrassed. I don't know why. It's happening in Louisville. It's happened near you, I promise. We live in East Louisville. It's happening over here. I promise you. And you think about the wicked redefinition of marriage and gender, the SCOTUS decision of 2015, the rise of LGBTQ, the fact that they've got pride. I mean, think of the word pride in that wickedness. Woe to him who calls evil good and good evil, but we do it. And the church has begun to subtly confirm it. We affirm it, right? With things like revoice. We're trying to revoice the conversation. We're not revoicing the conversation. They're saying, well, gay Christian, that's a valid category. Beloved, that is not a valid category. That is selling out. And you're going to sell out. We're going to reap the whirlwind of that sellout, of that crop of filth that we've planted, and that compromise. That is nothing but compromise. And he's warning against you. We'll fall away. That's a, that is a threat to our holiness, isn't it? And yet, it's seen as a hate crime to speak out against it. But we'll continue to speak out against it, won't we? Because God's word is very, very clear. If you don't get that from the Bible, you don't get anything from the Bible. Third danger of sexual immorality and sensuality. Fourth, finally, spiritual apathy. And this may be the greatest danger to you and to me of all of them. He illustrates with Esau, who forsook his birthright, Genesis 25, 29 to 34. Isaac, their father, was going to confer his birthright on the older son, the ancient Near East, the older son received the birthright, right? And of course, this is spiritual because he's conferring the birthright on the son of the covenant through whom Christ would come. And so we won't turn there, but you can read it another time, 29 to 34 in Genesis 27, 34 to 36. But Esau had the birthright. Jacob comes in, comes in and says, is making stew. Esau's hungry. He says, I want some of your stew. Isaac says, I mean, Jacob says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some stew if you'll give me your birthright. And Esau says, what, what does the birthright have to me? I don't care. I'll give me the stew. Sold it for a, you know, a bowl of ramen. Sold his birthright. Sold his soul for a, for a, a bowl of ramen and later tried to Repent, and God did not grant him repentance. And we'll get to that in a moment. He despised his birthright. What is this but spiritual apathy? Holding God's promises as Esau did in contempt. And we have spiritual apathy. We, don't, we live as if the gospel is not true, as if the word of God is not true. Then we hold the promises of God that are sure and certain in contempt. And we're apathetic. And you may be a young person and say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I, you know, I get it. I go to church and all this stuff. And, and I, you know, I don't have to read the Bible to do this to be a Christian. I don't worry. You may be an old person and think this. That's spiritual apathy. And you're in grave danger. Run. Run back to Jesus. You're in grave danger. That's apathy. You just sell your soul here. You know, I'll sell the word of God. We'll sell it out. Gay Christian, we'll sell it out. It's no big deal. We'll make people happy, you know. No. No. We must not. It's flippant. Genesis 25, 34, Esau says, it says, Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. 
That's how serious he took the promises of God. And his birthright, he just rose and went away and said, yeah, I don't have time for that, maybe someday. But the reality is God does not owe you repentance. He does not owe you one more breath or one more opportunity to repent. He doesn't owe me that either. What does he owe us? He owes us his unbridled wrath. That's all he owes us. And we have to understand that. He doesn't owe us anything. We must not be apathetic. So Esau held God's promises in contempt and later found no chance to repent even though he saw it with tears. He mourned the loss of his birthright with tears but he did not actually repent of the sin of despising God's promises. Maybe he sought to change his father's mind, but it's very clear from Scripture that his repentance was not genuine. It's not like, well, he's God, not God's elect, and he tried, and he wanted to, but God wouldn't let him. That's got nothing to do with this. No, he wasn't the elect. That was, that was Jacob. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We see that here, don't we? But, re- but in real life, he was not truly repentant, or he would have been forgiven Which is to say, today's the day of salvation. God doesn't owe you another chance. You may not get another chance. You may never even want to repent again. I mean, he's not saying Esau wanted to and allow it. It doesn't matter what Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10 calls a worldly grief over sin. I think I put that up here. He said, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. He's rejoiced, rejoiced because they were grieved over their sins to the degree that they repented. You felt a godly grief. That's it. Do you feel a godly grief over your sins? So that with the result that you suffered no loss through us. And here it is. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's two kinds of grief over sin. There's what Jonathan Edwards called evangelical grief that leads to salvation, which leads is the godly grief. And then there's what Esau had here, and that is a false grief. It is what I call Clintonian ethics. And if you live through a certain president's uh, uh, administration, you'll know what I mean. I'll leave that there. It depends on what is means, right? But it means I'm sorry I got caught. He's sorry he didn't get the stuff that comes with the birthright, probably. I'm guessing, hey, I get a lot of stuff, a lot of money. Now I'm really sad. It's got nothing to do with being the chosen heir of Abraham's race, of his grandfather Abraham. has got nothing to do with that. So he's apathetic. Are you apathetic? Are you repenting daily of your sins, or are you just saying, will you wait until you get caught and say, you know, I'm really sorry that I got caught. I want the benefits that come with the inheritance and the promises of God, but I don't want to pay the price and taking my cross and following him daily. Because that's where true, genuine repentance leads. Worldly grief leads to ultimately despising God Esau did, but will you? I want to wrap this up by saying this. You could get the idea, if you listen to this, only part of this sermon, that holiness is by our own effort. But holiness is by the grace of God every bit as much as salvation is. Now, do we cooperate in our sanctification? Yes, we do. Salvation is monergistic, absolute, 100% unilateral work of God's grace. Sanctification... We participate in that. God works in us, and, it's, and we work, and it's evidence that he's at work in us when we're at work. So at the end of the day, it's God's grace. Paul tells the Philippians, how do we do it? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It just goes back to Jesus. 
It's not your effort. It's Jesus. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We talked about that. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Okay, that's what we're talking about. How? Looking to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured what? The cross, punishment on the level, bloodshed, you will never endure. Endure the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of God, finished with his work, interceding for us right now. Right now. Look to Jesus. It's not your own effort. If you're looking to Jesus, you're going to put forth effort. You're going to work. You're going to, and Paul said he worked harder than them all, but it's not I that worked, but the grace of God that was work in me. And if there's no fruit and there's no work and there's no effort and no desire for holiness, even a desire, then you should be very concerned, beloved. And I should be very concerned if that's true of me. Are you flirting with apostasy? Bitterness? Maybe towards somebody outside the church, would you bring it into the church and you repent of that bitterness? So it doesn't become a bitter root of judgment. It becomes judgment on you and shows that you are not in Christ after all. Sexual immorality, maybe you're doing something in secret you know you shouldn't be doing. Because who you are in secret, that's who you are. I don't see it. The elders of this church don't see it, but God sees it. He sees everything I do as well. And who I am in secret, that's who I am. So I always say, ask my family who I am because that's who I am. Maybe it's secret sin. It's easy to keep it a secret from other people now these days, but it's not. It's impossible to keep it from God. Flee from that sin. Flee. Get accountability. Repent. Or maybe you're just apathetic and you're here and you don't care. You're here because your parents drug you here. Or you came became because it's what you do. We live in a quasi-southern Bible Belt place. I say quasi. <laughs> but, uh, and we do this here. A lot of churches, and that's what we do. We go to church. We're Southern Baptists. We do our duty. Friend, that's apathy. That's apathy. That's not pursuing holiness all out with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, not loving God and your neighbor. That's not. That's just Apathy. And the road, of, road to hell is paved with good intentions and apathy, right? I'll repent next week. I'll get into this after I get married, after I have a family, or after I grow up, I'll get into this, or after I retire, I'll get into this Christian thing because, well, you know, I'll have time then. Beloved, there's, there may not be time, and you aren't promised tomorrow. The antidote to these four dangers is the one another lifestyle in the church, and of course, looking to Jesus. See to it, see to it about those around you, and look to Jesus. Every single day. And use the means of grace that God has graciously given us to cultivate holiness. The word of God daily, prayer, service, evangelism. All these things are means of grace God has graciously given us. And see to it that you or someone around you never, ever, ever is in danger of falling short of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text, and it's frightening, and it's difficult to even communicate the seriousness of it, Lord, as serious as we try to be, Lord. I pray that you would take it and bind it to our hearts, that you would cause us to hate sin and love righteousness, that we would pursue holiness, that we'd be sobered by this call, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord, and that you would kill sexual immorality in us and apathy and bitterness. And all these things or these threats to us, Lord, would be laid aside. And you'd work in us to build the church for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.